our topic, Christ's explanation of the gospel. We're going to look at John 3, 16 and 17, and we're not going to finish today, but uh, we'll get through most of 16. And I'm going to go into a lot of analysis, a very theological sermon, but uh, this is one of the most important texts you'll ever see. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In these verses we have Jesus' own explanation of the gospel to the curious Pharisee Nicodemus. This is a continuation of the new birth narrative. And he's talking to Nicodemus. And um, this is still Christ speaking. I know a lot of uh, liberal commentators and a lot of commentators think this is a commentary by the Apostle John. But uh, if you read it, it's naturally just Christ continuing to speak. In the first part of this chapter, our Lord explains the new birth. That's verses 3 to 8. He rebukes Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, someone who ought to have knowledge. He's an educated man. He ought to know better. He rebukes him for being ignorant of such a crucial fundamental doctrine. Then Christ speaks of the incarnation and his atoning death on the cross in verses 13 to 14. Uh, by comparison between the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. <clears throat> The brazen serpent lifted up points to the objective fact of Christ's perfect salvation achieved on the cross of Calvary. Okay, so right off the bat we see Christianity is totally unique. With Buddhism, it's a philosophy. You do certain techniques and you're trying to achieve, well it depends on what kind of Buddhism, but in Tibetan Buddhism you want to be able to come back in a better form after reincarnation. Hinduism, you want to come back, you want to reincarnate and eventually get re-emerge into the oneness of everything because everything's one it's monism <clears throat> but here we have an objective fact of salvation Christ uh, achieved a perfect salvation on the cross so looking at the uh, snake lifted up points us to the need to look solely to Christ crucified for salvation the objective historical occurrence is appropriated by faith alone We'll look at these things in more detail as we look at John 3.16. Looking to the bronze snake lifted up in obedience to God's command brought temporal life, temporal life to the people under judgment. Remember, they're getting bitten by poison snakes and they're dying left and right. And God says, lift up the serpent. Look at it. If you look at the snake lifted up, you'll live. So they had to trust in God's word. Those who didn't look died. But looking to Christ crucified by faith brings eternal glorified life. So this is the context. The climax of these doctrines occurs in verse 15 when Jesus explains the end and purpose for which the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross. One must believe in the person and work of Christ in order to be saved and re receive eternal life. And we'll go into more discussion about that. But we're all guilty of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all committed sin. The whole world is guilty. 
There's none not, not righteous, not one. There's none that seeks after God. There's no way to earn eternal life. So if you don't look to Christ by faith, you're going to die in your sins. Faith is the instrument which lays hold of the perfect salvation achieved by the Savior. In verse 16, our Lord continues with his teaching on salvation, but goes into much more detail. <clears throat> this is an exceptionally rich section of Scripture, for it is a confessional summary of the good news of God's salvation by Christ himself. You want to know what the gospel is? Christ tells us what the gospel is. So let us carefully and reverently consider it, its many crucial doctrines. Let's look first at the origin or foundation of salvation. What is the origin of salvation? Is it man's goodness? Does man deserve salvation? No, we'll see it begins with God. Our Lord begins by taking us back to the very source or reason that Jesus came and achieved a perfect salvation. God so loved the world. Christ was God's love gift to the elect. And I'll go into I'll explain these things. He was sent because of God's love. There are those who teach that it was Christ's love and sacrificial death that moved the Father to love. I've heard that in evangelical sermons. And it's very common among liberals. God saw what Christ did and he, he was moved to have love. Well, that's bad theology. Such a view has things backwards and places a disharmony of purpose within the Trinity. What the Father wants, the Son wants. What the Father and Son wants, the Spirit wants. There's no contradiction between the persons of the Godhead. God loved the world in such a manner that he sent his Son to fulfill the covenant of works and die on the cross for his people. And just note, verse 15 is repeated verbatim in 16b. This demonstrates that Jesus is emphasizing faith in Christ for everlasting life to Nicodemus. So our Lord places before this Pharisee who believes in salvation by works of the law, that was the universal doctrine of the Pharisees. And you can read it in the Talmud. This idea, and you've probably heard this before, this comes from the Jewish Talmud. This comes from Phariseeism. Is that God is, there's two scales. On the Day of Judgment, and do your good works outweigh your bad works, etc. That's right in the Talmud. <clears throat> Our Lord placed before this Pharisee who believes in salvation by works of the law in an explicit, emphatic manner the importance of faith as the sole instrument which lays hold of the Son of God in his perfect salvation. By faith alone, not by works, by faith alone. God loved the world in such a manner that he sent his son to fulfill the covenant of works and die on the cross for his people. Jesus said, John 4.34, My work, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. So his work of suffering and dying, his work of fulfilling the law, is he calls it his work, his father's work. Hebrews 10.7, which is a, uh, referring to Psalm 46-8, then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written to me, to do your will, O God. Paul tells us, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
God's love leads directly to the incarnation and the bloody cross of Calvary. 1 John 4, 9-10. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this was love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he removed the wrath of God by eliminating the guilt and penalty of sin. Expiation means the removal of sin and guilt. Propitiation means the removal of God's wrath. And that leads immediately to reconciliation, where God is reconciled to the sinner. Why? Because when God looks at the sinner, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see our sins. Our Lord's, and this is important here, I want to deal with this, uh, when it says God's only begotten Son, the only person who uses that in the Gospels is, 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 is uh, Christ and John's Gospel. Our Lord's identification of himself as God's only begotten Son is deliberate and crucial. <coughs> the Messiah is not just a real man without sin. Yes, he's man. But also is God a very God. The Bible presents an interdependence of the divinity of Christ and the, the atonement, his death on the cross. Jesus had to be truly a man in both body and soul, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15, in order to die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for men. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't get the job done. The sacrificing of spotless bulls, goats, and sheep was typical and pointed to the Lamb of God to come, Jesus the Messiah. The author of Hebrews makes it perfectly clear that the sacrificial blood of clean animals could not really remove sin. But they pointed to Christ who could really remove sin. And, that, and just look up later, Hebrews 9, 12, 23-26, where he, he compares the old order, which is ceremonial and typical, to the completion in Christ. He also had to be truly God in order to offer a sacrifice of infinite value to the Father. Why? Well, the whole body of the elect, every person who's going to believe in Christ throughout history, and that includes the Old Testament saints, they look to the Messiah to come. We look back to the Messiah, we, um, to the completed work of Christ. We look back. Yes, we look right now to the living Messiah at the right hand of God, but we look back to the completed work. They had to look forward, because it hadn't happened yet. <clears throat> he died for millions of people. He offered a sacrifice of infinite value. He had to be God to do that. If he was just a man, just a regular man, he could die for one man. But he dies for millions of people. He had to be God. That's very important. Now, cults, <clears throat> in all the cults, they reject the divinity of Christ. They argue that the identification only begotten implies that there was a time when God created Jesus. The Way International, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Arians, the original Arians. Christ was the first created being. He's a mighty angel and so forth. That's all heresy. That's all damnable heresy. That's all cults. In other words, the Savior of the world is only a great creature, but he's not God. 
Such thinking is totally ignorant and heretical, for Scripture explicitly tells us that the pre-incarnate Son was face-to-face -face with God before creation. And is in fact God a very God. See, read John 1, 1-2. He was in the beginning with God. In the Greek there is much more colorful than the, the English. You know, he was face to face with God. There's this intimate communion among the Trinity. The Son of God created all things, including the, all the angelic beings. John 1, 2 and Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It's explicitly clear. Christ created not just the physical creation, but he created the spiritual creation, that is the angelic world. So he can't be just a great angel. And even if he was a great angel, great angels have no creative power. Only God has creative power. He identifies himself as the divine I am who existed before Abraham. John 8, 57 to 59. And he declared his equality with the Father in John 5, 17 to 26. And the amount of passages that explicitly teach or imply the divinity of Christ is overwhelming. I have a whole small booklet on this. Isaiah 7, 14 and 9, 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. Micah 5, 2. Malachi 3, 1 to 2, Psalm 45, 1 and 6 to 7, 110, 1 to 3, Mark 2, 5 to 11, Matthew 3, 3, Luke 1, 17, John 1, 1 to 3, and 14 and 18 and 20, uh, excuse me, John 20, 27 to 28, Romans 9, 6, and uh, 14, 10 to 11, Ephesians 4, 7 to 8, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Colossians 1, 15 to 16, and 2, 8 to 10, 1 Timothy 1, 16 to 17, 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, and 3, 14, and 6, 14 to 17, Titus 1 to 3, 2, 13, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and 8 to 9, and 12, and 13, 5, Jude 25, etc., etc. You can go online, go on reformedonline.com, and I have a booklet on there. It's pretty long. It's called, Jesus, Is Jesus Christ God? And the evidence for Jesus Christ being truly God, a very God, equal with the Father, is overwhelming. Now, the Trinity is a difficult topic, but the true Church from the very beginning has always taught that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father. It didn't happen at a point of time. He's eternally begotten. I know it sounds bizarre, but that's what the theologians came up with in the early Church, and it makes perfect sense, and nobody's improved upon it. He's eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And theologians call that spiration. Now, <clears throat> is it a difficult doctrine? Absolutely. But it's taught in Scripture, and we have to believe in it. And in the ancient church, the post-apostolic church, the great controversies were the Trinity, what is the nature of the Trinity, the persons of the Godhead, and who is Jesus Christ? Is he just God? Is he just man? Is he the first created being? And, and because they had to deal with heresies, the Arians. And so we have these wonderful, the first ecumenical councils deal with the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, and they have not been improved upon. They're virtually identical to the Westminster Standards. They're excellent. But you have to believe Christ is God if you're going to be saved. Otherwise, you couldn't have offered a, a sacrifice of infinite value. Well, there are a number of things that we want to learn about this love. First, the character of this love indicates in this context it is a saving love. Okay, it's very careful when we define the word love in Scripture that we let Scripture define what the word means and we don't just simply adopt what our culture says. 
our culture doesn't even have a biblical view of love regarding husbands and wives and how you're supposed to love people. It has a very, uh, you know, kind of an infatuation view of love, an emotional view of love solely. And that's not the primary meaning of love. The verb tense, the heiress, indicates a love before the foundation of the world. I have loved you with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. God is outside of time. He's not restricted by time. Ephesians 4.1.4. He chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So he chose us, if you're a Christian, he chose you before the world was even created. It is a love connected to pure sovereign grace and mercy, not a love based on human achievement or works. And we're going to go into that in more detail later. The sacrificial death of Christ proceeds solely from God's love. It is not something earned, merited, or deserved. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates, and I'll go into more detail, I have a, another point on this later. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's pretty amazing. He died for his enemies. He died for those rebelling against him. He died for those guilty of sin, worthy of death. That's who he died for. 1 John four nineteen. we love him because he first loved us. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So if it wasn't for this love that sent Christ into the world, you would never be a Christian. You'd die in your sins. Now let's talk about love some more. Love is an aspect of God's goodness and is manifested in different ways and extents depending on the objects toward which it is directed. There is a love in a general sense to all mankind which refers only to an undeserved benevolence. That's why it's very important we look at how the word love is used in Scripture. Because Arminianism, oh, God loves everybody equally, God wants to save everybody equally, and God's trying to save everybody equally. And what makes the difference is not God's sovereign grace and mercy, but some people are smarter than others and they see that Christ is the way to go and they choose Christ. Some people have a better will. Some people are wiser. They choose Christ. And that's what makes it, no, no, no. God only loves the elect with that saving love and the the non-elect, it's just a general benevolence. They have the sunshine. They get to eat nice food. They get to live on planet Earth. They're not sent to hell immediately. The Lord gives everyone, both saved and lost, rain, Sunshine, air, food, and so on. And Jesus speaks about this benevolence in Matthew 5.45. And he uses it as the basis for ethical teaching. He uses it as the basis of why we need to treat our Christian pagan neighbors nicely. Even if they're jerks. He loves us rational creatures For even in their present state, they show forth his image. He temporarily shows them benevolence. For even in their guilt and sinful state, he can still see his works, gifts, and likeness. 
Christians are to love, and that means treat them lawfully with undeserved kindness, their enemies in order to reflect this kind of love. And that's in Matthew 5, 44-46. If you love those who treat you good and love you, and that's all you do, whoopee-doo. How about, love, how about imitating God and showing kindness to your enemies? And to those who hate you and persecute you? Now, is Jesus saying that uh, vicious sodomites who are opposing Christ, that we have a, a warm emotional affection for them? That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying you want to treat them lawfully and with dignity as a human being, even though they don't deserve it, because of this benevolence that God shows them by giving them the benefits of creation. Will they receive judgment and go to hell? Absolutely. But our job is not to judge. Our job is to treat people with respect lawfully. But that's not an emotional love like a person has for his wife. You know, don't get that mixed up. Because when people get that mixed up, then their love becomes antinomian, which is what we see in the sodomite movement, these so-called sodomite churches. <clears throat> and this kind of love should never be confused with God's saving love or covenant love. So just think of the term benevolent. The Bible uses the word love, but the Bible uses the word love in different ways. You've got Absalom where he's got lust and infatuation, and the word love is used. Is that a biblical form of love? Absolutely not. And then you've got Matthew 5, where, God, where it talks about us loving our enemies, and the word there is referring to, be, we're to imitate God's benevolence and heap coals of fire on their heads and so forth. When the Bible speaks about God's love for his people, the elect, the invisible church, or Christ's sheep, it refers to a special saving love. It is a steadfast love that always saves and sanctifies. Always. It is eternal, and it can never fail. It denotes God's special favor to his people, his covenantal attachment to those who share in his special favor, and we see this to Joseph, Genesis 39.21, Israel, Numbers 14.19, to David, 2 Samuel 7.15, 22.50, Psalm 1851, 1 Chronicles 17.13. The pious, that is those who are true believers, who are sanctified, Psalm 5.7. It is connected with God's covenant, Nehemiah 1.5. It is the principle of forgiveness, Psalm 64, 31.16, 44.26, 109.26, and Lamentations 3.22. Of grace, Psalm 51.1, of comfort, Psalm 119.76, and it endures forever. Isaiah 54.8-10. If God loves you with the saving love, I guarantee you that you will be saved. You will not fall away. You will persevere. You will have the gift of faith and repentance. And it is said uh, in the Psalms, it is better than life. Psalm 63.3. It has revealed itself in the fullness of its riches in Jesus Christ. You want to know about the love of God? Look at what Christ did on the cross. Look at what he did for his people. Romans 2.4, 2 Corinthians 10.1, Ephesians 2.7, Colossians 3.12, and Titus 
and in the present manifests itself to believers. When we say believers, real believers. Because in the, in the parables, Jesus talks about people with false faith, historical faith, not a real faith. They don't really trust in Christ for salvation. It's just a mere intellectual assent, but they don't really believe in it. Leading them to repentance, Romans 2.4 and 11.22 and Galatians 5.22. He loves true believers with a special love because he looks upon them as in Christ, pardoned of all sin and guilt, and clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, as his own spiritual children. John 16.27. The Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. That's, you have to believe in Christ to experience this love. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's another one. 1 John 3.1 Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. And in the Bible, in the Ordo Salutis, and of course, all the aspects of salvation that Christ gives us, becoming adoption, being adopted into God's own family is the pinnacle. We're justified in Christ. We're sanctified in Christ. We will be glorified in the future when Christ returns. Well, when we get our glorified bodies. But we're part of God's own family. The love of God for the elect does not make salvation a mere possibility if we cooperate by exercising an unencumbered will, a supposed unencumbered will, it results in the objects of that love actually becoming God's covenant spiritual saved children. And it's especially true if you read like Ephesians chapter 1. Predestinated. Romans 8. Foreknowledge. And foreknowledge, don't think of it as an Arminian does. Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked down the quarters of time. It means love beforehand. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and had a son. It's not simply intellectual knowledge. It's love. That the love spoken of as a special saving love is indicated by what that love does. The Father's love gives His only begotten Son. And we'll, we'll look at this in more detail a little later. The Greek construction puts some stress on the actuality of the gift. It is not God loved so as to give, but God so loved so that He gave. Arminians want to look at everything as hypothetical. No, God loved, and that loved really saves. It's a saving love. It actually saves. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The love described is not a mere emotional desire that makes salvation a possibility to all if they cooperate, but rather refers to an actual gift that really saves. The giving of the Son involves not just the incarnation, but the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus came to die on the cross, and that death actually saves. 
Okay, this whole idea of a hypothetical salvation was invented by humanists, by heretics. Christ really saves his people. Jesus came to die on the cross, and that death saves everyone for whom he died. This view is supported by the design of this love. Verse 16b, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ died for believers, that is, people who have true faith. And there are two serious errors regarding the meaning of this love that we need to consider. The first is the typical Arminian. Okay, Arminius is a guy back in, what was it, early 1700s? I forget the exact years. Maybe it was 1600s. The Dutch dealt with that with a cannons of door. And then this, which is a rehash of an earlier heresy called semi-Pelagianism, which didn't take the fall seriously and taught that man still has a free will, an encumbered will that can choose Christ of its own power without an act of regeneration. And that says that this verse teaches us that God loves every single human being in the world in the same way, and thus he sent Jesus to die for every single human being in the world. In other words, he loved everybody in such a manner that he opened up a possibility of saving everyone. Now, whether or not a person is actually saved is totally up to them. If they do not exercise their free will in the correct way, then they will be condemned forever. And I remember, I, I would, when I was first a professing Christian, I was an Arminian. I, I didn't even know what Arminianism was. The only time I heard John Calvin's name was in a sermon to condemn him as a fool. But the preacher, the preacher would be out there, Jesus died for you. He's up in heaven right now. He, and he wants to save you, but it's up to you. There's nothing he can do. It's totally up to you. He can't save you unless you let him. Now, although this is by far the most common view among modern evangelicals, it is radically unscriptural for a number of reasons. Number one, the scriptures explicitly reject the idea that God loves everyone with a special saving love. Okay, we're not talking about benevolence for the non-elect. We're talking about saving love. When Paul explains why many Jews rejected Jesus, he points out that God's eternal saving love is only extended to some. He's in the book of Romans, and he's answering objections that are raised by Jews. That are, you know, well, what about Israel? God had national election of Israel. That God had this, you know, relationship with the nation. Why do most Jews reject Christ? Why are they going to hell? And he answers that objection. Referring to God's choice before they were even born, Paul says, It is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, does this statement present God? Isn't that unfair that God would love one and hate the other? Isn't that unfair? Remember, these are twins. These are twins. And Esau was born first. They were twins. They were Jews. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, it's not according to your human will, nor of him who runs, it's not of human works, you don't earn God's favor, it's not of your free will, but of God who shows mercy. 
Romans 9, 13 to 16. The Apostle explains why some Jews, why only some Jews are saved by referring to the doctrine of unconditional election. Why is it that some people are saved and some people are not saved? Well, it's not because of your free will, and it's not because you're better than other people or wiser or smarter. It's totally, solely due to God's mercy and his love, his choosing beforehand. Out of the whole race of fallen guilty men, God loved only some with a saving love. Those whom he foreknew, and the word foreknow means those he loved beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. I should have read the rest of that where he says, those who are they're justified and they'll be glorified. There's an unbreakable chain. The love leads to salvation. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. This is 2 Timothy 1, 8c-9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So you didn't have anything to do with it. Because the Armenian says, well, God looked down the quarters of time and he saw who would believe in Christ and those are the ones he chose. That is one of the most idiotic doctrines I've ever heard. Why does God know the future? Because God is sovereign and he decrees the future and everything that happens happens according to his decree. Things don't happen outside of his control. Did God love Pharaoh when he drowned him in the Red Sea and sent him to hell? Romans 9.17. Did he love the Amalekites? Exodus 17.14. Or the Canaanites whom he commanded the Israelites to exterminate without mercy? Deuteronomy 20.16. Did God really love Esau even though he decided not to save him from guilt or sin before he was born? Wicked Guilty unbelievers who never believe in Christ receive benevolence from God while they are alive and that they enjoy the gifts, bounty, and beauty of God's creation. But they never receive saving love because such love actually saves. Benevolence. Now I know some might say, well, since it's temporary, we can't really call it benevolence. Well, God calls it benevolence. God calls it love for the non-elect. So we have to use those terms. We just have to be careful to make a, a sharp distinction between that and saving love that actually saves. I watched a thing about the original neighborhood in Old Hollywood, the 1920s. And uh, Whitley Heights was the first big neighborhood for all the rich people. These beautiful uh, Spanish-style, Mediterranean-style mansions. So these total heathen swine who were fornicating and doing all, having all these parties, did they have enjoyment? Did they have sunshine and good food and fun while they were alive? Yes, they did. They did share in God's benevolence, God's beautiful creation. But God didn't love them, you know, unless they became a Christian, God didn't love them with a saving love. And thus, when they died, they went straight to hell. It's sad. But we have to submit ourselves to what the Bible says, whether we like it or not. I wish God would save everybody, but he doesn't. <clears throat> Number two, in addition, 
Earlier in the same discourse, our Lord told Nicodemus that no one could perceive spiritual truths unless they were first born again from above. That's John 3.3, and of course that comports with 3.20-21, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14-15, uh, 3.20-21, and 2 Corinthians 4.3-4. That is by a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. John 3, 8, 4, 40, 4 to 45, 1 John 2, 10, 1 Corinthians 3, 2, 15, and Acts 16, 14. Hey, if you're not born from above, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't even perceive the truth. What you need is a new birth. If God loved everyone with the same saving love, why would the Lord withhold the new birth for millions of people, for multitudes of people, leaving them blind? Isaiah 6, 9-10, and John 1, 4-5, and John 8, 43-44 and 47. And dead to spiritual truth, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. Unable to believe, Ephesians 2, 8, Philippians 1, 6. And unable to repent, Acts 11, 18, 13, 48, 2 Timothy 2, 25. Faith and repentance are called gifts of God in the New Testament. They're called gifts. Not because God um, <coughs> believes for the sinner. We have to believe. But because God enables and causes particular people to believe. The Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. You're, you're dead. You're blind to spiritual truth. You can hear the best sermon in the world, and if you're not regenerated, you're going to laugh it off as foolishness. But once you're regenerated, you see the truth, and you go, Wow. That's really true. And the Holy Spirit draws you to Christ. Internal call. And it, you get the gift of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance flow from a heart regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is an act of God and of God alone. But faith is not the act of God. It is not God who believes in Christ for salvation. It is the sinner. However, it is by God's grace that a person is able to believe. But faith is an activity on the part of the person and of him alone. In faith, we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. But why do we do it? Because God first opens our deaf, ear, our deaf ears and our blind eyes and raises us spiritually from the dead through regeneration. And regeneration is due, Romans 6, 3 and following, or 5 and following, and many other passages, due to union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So to say God loves everyone, he's trying to save everyone, when he doesn't bother to regenerate everyone, is insanity. It's unbiblical and it's irrational. The Arminian view of God's love is based on the idea that God cannot save who he wants to. That the human will is sovereign over God. And they, they couch it in terms, well, God voluntarily limited him. God wanted to give man a truly free will, so God uh, limited his own nature, because God is sovereign by nature. God limited his own nature to give man a true, true free will. Now, we have a free will in the sense that we're not forced to do anything against our will, but God's in charge of everything. When they talk about free will, they, they mean an unencumbered will and that everybody has the same ability to believe in Christ and those who believe of their own free will are saved and those who don't are not. 
when the Bible teaches that we're all blind spiritually and none of us can believe. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. They believe that the human will is sovereign over God and that God's plan of salvation is irrational and incompetent. It makes the love of God far less than a mother has for her little son. She would most certainly save him if she could. Yet according to Arminians, God's love leaves most people dead and blind to the gospel, so they perish in their sin and guilt. You know, before Christ came, the true religion only existed in a tiny little nation in the Middle East, Israel. And even among Israel, there was only a remnant. There was only a small group of people that really believed. Remember Elijah complaining to God, I'm the only one left. Everybody else is apostate. They all hate you. They all worship Baal. God says, no, no, no. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, that's in a nation of 3 million people. However many, you know, there's a lot of people in Israel that left Egypt. Yet the Egyptians, uh, well, the Egyptians after Moses, uh, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Chinese, the Eskimos, nobody heard the gospel until after the Great Commission. So if God really loved them and is trying to save them, he's doing a really bad job. The Arminian position of logical necessity must redefine God's infinite saving love as really only a non-infinite, non-saving love. They import a humanistic concept of, the, of fairness into their concept of salvation that does not take into account that all have sinned, Romans 3.23, that we don't deserve to be saved. There is none who seeks after God, Romans 3.11, and all are guilty and deserving of damnation, Romans 3.19. It's a very humanistic view. Oh, God deserves to give everybody a chance. God deserves to save everybody. No, God could send the whole human race to hell and it'd be perfectly just. The fact that he saves millions through Christ shows his wonderful love and grace and mercy. It is only due to God's love, grace, and mercy that he saves some. All human beings are sinful, guilty, and wicked. They're evil enemies of God and his authority. Nobody deserves to be saved. Everybody deserves to be damned. We deserve nothing from God except judgment. So we should be thankful that he does have a saving love and saves many, actually multitudes, throughout the whole world through Christ. There's churches in you know virtually every nation on earth except for North Korea. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if there was a hidden church there. I know that there's thousands of underground churches in China. There's churches all over. The true gospel exists in every, virtually every nation today. If people are lost and go to hell, the blame is all theirs. For they're the ones that sin and rebelled against an infinitely holy God. But when people are saved from sin, guilt, and hell, the credit all belongs to God and Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus was poured out due to God's love. So don't blame God if you go to hell. Don't say God is unfair if people go to hell when they sinned of their own volition and they rejected God, they rejected Christ, they loved their sin, and they rebelled against God and they deserve to go to hell. Be thankful that God saves some, that God loves a multitude in Christ. Second, there is the error which says that since the preaching of the gospel is to go to every human being, Mark 16, 15, 
in Matthew 28, 18 and following, that God sincerely loves every single human being and really desires the salvation of every single person in the world without exception. It's kind of like a mild form of Arminianism. You find it in Arthur Pink, you find it in Spurgeon. Therefore, we must not hesitate to tell every sinner that God loves him. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If one does not accept the free offer of the gospel, we are told, then one cuts himself off from this love of God. In other words, God actually really, really loves you. He really wants to save you, but he doesn't. <laughs> this view is held by Calvinists who simultaneously hold to a limited or definite atonement. Jesus only died for the elect. Unconditional election. God only chose some in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's unconditional. It's not based on a foreseen faith. And the Reformed view, that regeneration of the new birth, which is a gift from God, logically precedes saving faith and repentance. If you read Billy Graham's book on the new birth, if you talk to Armini, hardcore Arminians, God makes you born again when you exercise your faith. In other words, being born again is a reward of your act of the free will, which is humanism. But Jesus said it's from above. And if you don't have it, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't even see the truth of the gospel. Now this view, held by Pink, and uh, excuse me, not Pink, uh, J.C. Ryle. Arthur, Arthur uh, Pink is excellent. Excuse me, I'm, I should have said J.C. Ryle and Spurgeon. And Spurgeon's not always consistent. But J.C. Ryle, who's probably my favorite writer of the 1800s, he's a super good writer, um, Episcopal guy, uh, totally, you know, God, God loves every single human being, God really wants to save every human being, he says that. Yeah, Pink is, Arthur Pink is excellent, so if I said Pink earlier, forget that. This you go way, goes way beyond the idea of love as mere benevolence, which is taught in Matthew 5, 44-45. It is a real love that wants to save, yet refuses to save. And there are a number of serious problems with this view. It's basically a perversion of the free offer. It's a perversion of it. Number one, it does not comport with our Lord's ministry in the gospel narratives. For example, our Lord spoke in parables to obscure the truth to some because God was unwilling to reveal these truths explicitly to them. Did you know that? God deliberately hid God's truth from some people. In Matthew 13, 11 to 16, we read this, And the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. What did Jesus say after he preached? A lot. He said this a lot. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. 
That's why when we, like if you're going to be a teacher in the church or a preacher, don't worry what, don't worry about whether you're popular, don't worry about where people like you or all that. Be faithful to the Word of God and teach the truth faithfully. If people don't like you, that's too bad. On the one hand, we are told that God loves everyone equally and that God really desires to save every single human being in the whole world equally. That's what we're told by J.C. Ryle, who I love, by the way. I have virtually everything he's written. His commentary on John, if you don't have it, go out and buy it. But Jesus says if the parables are given in order that some people will not understand, And when Mark paraphrases a summary of our Lord's quotation of Isaiah, he writes this. This is Mark 4.12. And hearing they may hear and not understand, listen, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. What a radical statement to make. I'm speaking in this way because there are some people that I don't want to have their sins forgiven them. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. So if you have a problem with what I'm saying, you can talk to Jesus about it. If Jesus loves everyone equally and is sincerely trying to save every single person in the whole world, then why would he deliberately alter his teaching in such a manner to prevent people from understanding the truth? That would be pretty strange, wouldn't it? Why would the Savior go out of his way to keep some people from turning to God and receiving forgiveness of their sins? Now, it is true that people are blind and dumb due to their own sin and depravity. That's absolutely true. We're born blind. We're born dead. We're born dumb. We're born depraved. It is also true that people become hardened in their sin and blindness as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness throughout life. That's why you see these, there's all these atheists on YouTube that are super popular, even though they're complete imbeciles. Their, their, their arguments are totally stupid if you know philosophy and logic, simple logic. They just say things that are totally arbitrary and people are, oh, these guys are brilliant. Hawkins or Dawkins or whatever, those guys, those, those guys are idiots. I've watched their stuff. They're good speakers. They're charismatic. But what they say is complete rubbish. But only those to whom it is given of the Father are regenerated so that they can perceive, understand, and believe the truth. And that's the truth. Our Lord's own teaching is totally incompatible with the idea that the Savior loves, that is with a special, particular, saving love, all mankind and really desires the salvation of every single human being. The scriptures don't teach that. Jesus in John 6.39 and 44 teaches that a saving love always results in glorified, resurrected life. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, not one, but should raise it up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's pretty amazing stuff. In addition, our Lord's high priestly prayer is inexplicable if one believes that Jesus is really trying and really wants to save every single human being who ever lived. Read it. Read John 17. Christ only prays for the elect. 
those, that is those who really will believe in Christ. And he refuses to pray or intercede for the non-elect. This is what he says. This is John 17, 6, 8C, 9, 11B, and 20. I could have read the whole thing, but I didn't want to take the time. I have manifested your name to the man whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You have given them to me. And they have kept your word. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Keep through your name those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, I pray for the elect, those who truly believe now, and I pray for all those who will truly believe the elect in the future. Jesus prays for the elect or all true believers that they may be kept faithful or preserved, sanctified or made holy, united and glorified. He does not pray for the non-elect or the world of unbelievers who never received the gift of faith. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see Christ speaking about saving grace given to him, um, about saving those given to him by the Father. You notice that over and over again. Those whom you have given me, they are yours. This can only refer to a fixed number chosen out of the world. And here's what the great covenanter George Hutchison writes. Quote, and this is way back in 1657. The object loved, which is the world, whereby we are not to understand all in every man, for that were to make God be disappointed of his will, and of what he intends toward man out of his love, seeing that all get not good of Christ, and to have him giving Christ for them, for whom he will not sanctify himself nor intercede. And then he refers to John 17. Isaiah speaking of the Messiah's atonement, God speaking through Isaiah, I should say. Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now, if Christ died for every single human being who ever lived, you know, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Charles Manson, and thus far, the vast majority of mankind has not believed in the gospel and has gone straight to hell, uh, could we say that he's satisfied? No. The idea that the gospel must be preached to all. Therefore, God loves all with a special saving love and really wants every single person saved in the world is an assumption not warranted by the text of Scripture at all. Now, the gospel is to be taught to all because no human being knows who the elect are and who does not belong to the elect. We don't know. We have no idea. So we preach to everybody. And we're not, you know, we're not to be even judge brothers in Christ who seem to be kind of flaky. There's people that I looked when I was a younger Christian, there's people that I totally looked up to as the greatest Christians in the world. You know, getting up at 5 a.m. to pray for an hour and a half and all this kind of stuff. And today they're totally apostate. One guy, he was a Greek scholar, he was amazing. He ran off with a cocktail waitress. He forsake his wife and his several children. Became a total whoremonger. You don't know. And I've seen people that were total flakes. I thought, man, I'm not even sure that guy's a Christian. And then they 
They persevere and they grow and they become solid. We're not to be judging our brother. If somebody's in, in sin, obviously we follow Matthew 18, but we don't know. Only God knows. The gospel will be presented to all in order to gather in the elect or those loved by the Father and possessed by God who he gives to the Son. John 6.37 Jesus said, Many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22.14 The preaching of the gospel by God's messengers is identified, and this is Matthew 24.31, as gathering his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. That's what's going on today. The gospel are being gathered. Christ encouraged Paul to preach the gospel in Corinth. Listen to why. Acts 18.10 For I have many people in this city. It's not, oh, I, I, I want to save every single person in the whole city, in the whole world. No, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? I have many elect in this city. Go gather the elect. The idea that God loves the non-elect with a saving love and really wants to save them but refuses to regenerate them, draw them to Christ by his spirit, and enable them to repent and believe is totally absurd. doesn't make any sense in the world at all. It places an internal contradiction within God's character, which is impossible. God commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, Acts 17.30. That is a preceptive requirement, not a subjective desire. And I'll end there because we've we've gotten gone an hour. But um, it's amazing stuff. We'll go take a break. I don't know if I have enough for a second one or not, but we'll uh, take a break and consider that. But this is this is one of the most richest passages. John three sixteen. You see, you know, if you've ever watched a football game or a baseball game or the World Series, there used to be a guy with a John three sixteen sign. I haven't seen him in a long time. Maybe he got sick and died, but this is probably the most famous passage uh, among all Christians in the world. Yet the vast majority of professing Christians pervert the passage and don't really understand what it says. And that's not good. So let's learn. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. There's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his soul for us, wicked sinners. What an amazing love that you would give your only begotten Son for your enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us while we were his enemies. So Lord, fill us with your Spirit. Cause us to live in terms of this love and return that love as best we can due to your, the power of your Spirit. Bend our hearts to obey your law, to be covenantally faithful. To love your word and to study it, that we could better and better follow Christ your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.